0: Please join me with me as we read from 1 Kings 21. Uh, I think it will just be on the screen today. (laughs) Unless you have your own Bible. Now Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard Ahab king of Samaria. And after this Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it is near my house. And I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or, if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab went into his house, vexed and sullen, because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed, and turned away his face, and would not eat, and would eat no food. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite, and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else, if it pleases you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, Do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread, and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal, and she sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, Proclaim a fast, and set Naboth at the head of the people, And set two worthless men opposite him, and let them bring a charge against him, saying, You have cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. And the men of his city, the elders and the leaders who lived in his city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them. As it was written in the letters that she had sent to them, they proclaimed a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. And the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned. He is dead. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise. Take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, to take possession of it. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth shall dogs lick your own blood. Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? He answered, I have found you, because you have have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me, and because you have made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel the Lord also said, The dogs shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat. And anyone of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel his wife incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols, as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. And when Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days, I will bring the disaster upon his house.
1: Thank you, Beck.
2: Well, you'll notice I've taken off my mask, but I will stand here. Okay. Well, a couple of weeks ago, on the 25th of June,
1: Derek Chauvin the police officer who was videoed with his knee on the neck of George Floyd was sentenced with 22 and a half years in jail for murder. When that sentence was released, uh, the hashtag JusticeForGeorgeFloyd lit up social media. And yet many have said that uh, his sentence is too short
2: and that that doesn't actually reflect true justice for Floyd how is it that you decide when
1: someone deserves justice and when someone deserves
2: mercy how do you know when to apply one or the other You see, our own uh,
1: moral compass on this uh, is surely quite subjective and, uh, in the end, probably still based on merit. Uh, You know, we we think that somebody uh, might deserve uh, some mercy because we actually think, you know, well, their punishment outweighs the crime, it's too harsh. Or perhaps we think to ourselves, uh, you know, they've actually done enough to make up for it, so show them some mercy. Or we might seek justice that actually looks more like revenge than it does like justice. Perhaps the more penetrating question for each of us as we seek to get to the heart of how it is that we think about these things is, how do you decide when you deserve justice
2: and when you deserve mercy? Because what we think we deserve
1: is going to undoubtedly determine what we think others deserve, isn't it? That will be the standard with which we weigh and evaluate whether justice or mercy should be dished out to somebody else. And while well, these twin concerns of justice and mercy are the focus of our passage, and so as we explore it, let's have our Bibles, well, our blue Bibles aren't out today for extra COVID protection measures, but if you do have it, uh, a phone or something with you, ha- have it open, the passage open, First uh, Kings 21, 9, 17 to 29. Uh, we are also going to have it on the screen if you don't. But let's, let's have our, our Bibles and our hearts and our minds open to hear the Lord's Word this morning. And so I have three points for you today, the first of which will be the longest, and so let's begin there. Point number one, love justice. Love justice. Well, justice has become quite the topic on people's minds over the last couple of years, hasn't it? In 2018, it was um, Merriam-Webster's Word of the Year. Uh, And of course, over the last 12 months, it has been on the minds of many people in the West. The, The video, as I mentioned, of George Floyd in Minnesota sparked protests in nations everywhere, Even here in Australia, and the Black Lives Matter movement uh, has become the rallying cry for breaking down a systemic racism. What's your definition of justice? How would you define what justice is? For many people, this kind of social justice, which I just described, is exactly what comes to mind. As a matter of fact, some would say that that is actually the cornerstone of justice. Unless that is achieved, then justice will never fully be uh, completed. Others would say that justice can only occur when someone is given a fair trial, that that must be necessary in order for justice to be truly uh, executed. In many ways, what we see in our society and this tension that we are observing, uh, this incredible cultural moment that we are currently living through, is a collision of competing definitions of justice.
2: Now, if you're a Christian, you ought to love justice. You ought to love justice. Why? Because God loves
1: justice. The Bible speaks a lot about it, like in Psalm chapter 33, verse 5. He loves righteousness and justice. And many Christians who love justice will often quote Isaiah 1, 17. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless.
2: Plead the widow's cause. But the crucial, cre- the crucial question we must answer is Do
1: you love the kind of justice that God loves?
2: Do you love the kind of justice that God loves? Because you see, it's one thing to love a, a socially
1: informed, a culturally shaped form of justice, and it's another to love God's justice. Now, of course, there may be some overlap between those ideas, conceptions of justice. But as followers of Christ, we must take care to ensure that we let God always give us our definition of what justice is. And how
2: is it that God gives us his definition? Well, it comes through his word. That's exactly what we see in our passage. Let's read from verse 17.
1: Then the word of the the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. As we've seen before in Elijah's life, it's the word of the Lord that leads and guides Elijah. It's the word of the Lord that passes down God's justice on Ahab. Elijah is told to go to Ahab in Samaria, which is perhaps better translated as who rules in Samaria, uh, because we know that, and as it says in the very next uh, breath, he is actually in the vineyard of Naboth in Jezreel. The Lord directs Elijah to go and pronounce his judgment on Ahab, which we see in verse 19. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick your
2: own blood. Did you notice the two charges that Elijah brought to Ahab?
1: They were killing, murdering, and taking possession.
2: Well, that looks a lot like a couple of commandments from Exodus 20, doesn't it? You shall not murder, you shall not steal. Those are the sixth and the eighth commandments of
1: the ten that God gave to Moses and to the Israelites. And so, it is a very clear transgression of God's will and His instructions that He has given. And as a result... The judgment upon Ahab is that his blood will also be spilled and licked up by the dogs. Now, in case you're wondering, spoiler alert, this is exactly what happens. We see it in the very next chapter in verse 38 of chapter 22. Ahab dies in his chariot and the dogs lick up his blood. And the mention of the prostitutes in that verse is is likely highlighting the fact that Ahab never did actually get rid of the foreign religions and idol worship that he was condemned for. But this transgression of these two covenants, you know, it's not the only judgment that Ahab is going to receive. When Elijah actually comes to deliver the word of the Lord, well, the conversation continues.
2: Let's read from verse 20. Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy?
1: He answered, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do
2: what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Well, that sounds like a familiar greeting from Ahab, doesn't it?
1: Last time Elijah approached him in 1817, Ahab called him the troubler of Israel. But, oh, it's, it's such a telling welcome, isn't it? When Elijah says, oh, my enemy? My enemy? Why is it that Elijah is, is Ahab's enemy? Elijah, after all, he, he's actually a prophet of the Lord. He's actually the one who hears the word of the Lord and comes to him and delivers it to him. Why is
2: he Ahab's enemy? Well, Elijah tells us. Because Ahab has made himself an enemy of the Lord. He has sold
1: himself to do what is evil in the sight of God. Now, that language basically has the same meaning as we would use it today. So, if you're a sellout as an artist or as a musician, then it means that you're only in it for the money, and that means that you have no soul. And it means that you're just greedy and you don't care about the art. That's, that's what we mean when we say that. If you have sold your soul to Satan or to big corporates or whatever it might be, it means that you have no moral compass. Or it means really that what you have sold yourself to becomes your moral compass. If you're sold as a slave to a master, after all, you you can only do whatever it is that the master wants you to do. You're bound to do what your master tells you to do. And so here we see Ahab has sold himself to do evil.
2: He has completely turned himself over. Now, did Ahab, you know, one night in his room think to himself, I'm going to be an agent of Satan. I'm just going to do
1: evil. That's what I want to do. Well, you know what? Maybe he might have. But perhaps more likely, Ahab simply believed
2: the lie that false gods and sin offer something better than the true God. And as he took steps in that direction,
1: as he became more and more affirmed in the belief that, you know, just these, these little things that, uh, that uh, Asherah and Baal can offer
2: me, maybe they are a whole lot better than what this Yahweh that I'm supposed to worship
1: can offer me. And as he took more and more steps in the, that direction, his heart grew harder and harder, until he could no longer tell. You know, there's a word of caution in that for us, isn't there? You know, most of us wouldn't consciously say, or, or believe, or, or actively make the decision to say, yeah, I'm just going to be a really bad person, that's what I want to do. No. And yet, how easily do we believe the lie that our idols will bring more joy to us than God? How easily do we believe, slowly, bit by
2: bit, that these pleasures are greater than the ones found in Christ? If you've ever witnessed someone falling away
1: from God, I I bet you that in the vast majority of cases, it wasn't like a
2: switch that was just suddenly flicked, but it was more like a dimmer that was slowly turned until the light was out. Christian, you must always be on your guard
1: against sin. The temptation to take steps in that direction is far too great. The devil tempts you with sugar-coated poison. He drives around in an ice cream truck that looks amazing. But ultimately, what he is selling will be your destruction.
2: You must instead feast daily on true bread. Yeah, Ahab's sin wasn't
1: just that he broke the sixth and the eighth commandments, he descended into total
2: slavery to evil. And that's why Elijah goes on. Let's read from verse 21. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you.
1: I will utterly burn you up. And will cut off from Ahab every male bond or free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me, and because you have made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel the Lord also said, The dogs shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city the dogs she shall eat.
2: And anyone of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. Listen to God's justice on Ahab. I will utterly burn you up. Utterly means completely. There will be nothing left.
1: Like the fire that consumed the meat, the wood, the the water, and the altar on Mount Carmel, there will be nothing left. Such will be the fire of judgment on Ahab and his house and his descendants. Every male that belongs to him, every son that he has shall be wiped out, cut off. The judgment for Ahab's sin is so terrible, it's so heinous, that the consequences of it are not just laid on him, but also on his sons. Now, this might sound, and I'm sure it does for most of us, even those who have been Christians for a long time, sound terrible and sound over the top. But God has actually already made it clear to the Israelites that this could happen for their disobedience. Later on in Exodus chapter 20, in the same list of the Ten Commandments, we read this in verse 5. Sorry, not later on, but earlier. In the second commandment, You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Do not make idols, is, is, is this commandment. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. The Jews in Jesus' day were even aware of this. In John chapter 9, verse 2, uh, we see a rabbi asking Jesus about whether the cause of this man's blindness from his birth was because of his own sin or because of his parents.
2: And so Ahab's sin would have generational consequences. He knew that, or at least he should have. The Ten Commandments made that very
1: clear. And not only that, not only did God already make it clear, but this kind of evil from a king of Israel and the justice that has been brought down by God on that king has already happened twice before. That's why he mentions it in the passage. If you read 1 Kings chapter 14 and chapter 16, you'll see a very, very similar story to Ahab being told with the kings Jeroboam and Barsha. Both of them devoted themselves completely to evil, and both of them went after other gods. Both received the same generational consequences, the same justice. You know, the similarities are actually so striking uh, that even the wording in, verses, uh, in chapter 14, verses 11 and sixteen four, they are almost identical to that that we see in our passage. It's, it's almost exactly the same. I mean, seriously, (laughs) you'd think that these Israelite kings would learn their lesson from history. As George Santayana's well-known quote goes, those who cannot
2: remember the past are condemned to repeat it. You'd think they would learn. You'd think that they would have read the annals of the kings of Israel and seen that that is what happened. But no, such lessons aren't paid much attention when a heart is enslaved to sin. And so we see here yet another reason why Ahab's sin is so severe.
1: Because not only did he break the sixth and the eighth commandments, not only did he
2: sell himself out to evil, he also made Israel to sin. He led them in idolatry. Ahab's punishment is of
1: such a high degree because his sin didn't just affect him. He led an entire nation into disobeying God. And the king's responsibility, as we heard before from Deuteronomy 17, was supposed to be to lead the nation into the worship of God. He was meant to be so steeped in the Word of God that he himself wouldn't turn aside from it and therefore lead the nation into it. And did you notice when we read it before what the result would be if the king maintained faithfulness to the Lord? Have a look at verse 20 of Deuteronomy 17. He may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. The promises for the king if he stayed faithful to God were longevity in his line and his descendants. It was the exact opposite of the judgment that would come. The king had to know God himself in order for him to be able to lead the whole nation of Israel to God.
2: And you know, in a similar but certainly not identical way, this is the reason why elders in
1: the church must be men who know the Lord and who are steeped in the word themselves. The picture that you get of, of the qualifications of an elder in 1 Timothy 3 are of a man who is mature in his faith, who has spent many years soaking in Scripture, who has spent many years pursuing the Lord, seeking Him for Himself in order that He may be able to lead others to do the same. It's also why Paul sounds the warning in the next chapter to Timothy of that letter in chapter 4 to keep a close watch on himself and on the teaching. You notice that? Those two things. Watch yourself and watch the, the thing that you are actually teaching from Scripture.
2: Sounds a lot to me like the instructions that were given to the kings of Israel. And this is also, of
1: course, why leaders and teachers are held to a higher and stricter standard, as James 3.1 makes very clear. See, people like myself and all our elders and all our elders all over the globe, in churches all over the globe, are responsible not just for themselves and not just for their families, but also for the flock that God has entrusted to their care.
2: Brothers and sisters, please pray for us. Pray for us as we undertake this task as
1: shepherds in service of the good shepherd. Pray that we would continue to be so steeped in the word, to be so continually uh, running to Jesus for our own souls, so that we might be able to lead faithfully. Of course, we notice in verse 23 of our passage that Jezebel doesn't escape judgment either. You know, she's, as I've said a few times over the last few weeks, probably the puppet master behind a lot of what's going on. And she certainly, as we read in, in chapter 21, is the one who engineered the murder of Naboth and the theft of his vineyard. But do you notice how uh, Ahab was not let off the hook? As a matter of fact, the vast majority of, of the judgment pronounced was to him, wasn't it? Once again, just like with Adam, we've seen this before, passivity in allowing evil to occur under your nose with your own spouse
2: makes you just as guilty. Now, if you're single here this morning, I cannot stress to you enough. Do not even entertain the possibility of marrying a non Christian.
1: Aside from the very clear instructions in 1 Corinthians that we get not to do so, you are putting yourself in grave danger. But romantic love is a very powerful thing. And if you do not share the same heart to love and to submit to the Lord, then the temptation to succumb to sin or to turn a blind eye to it becomes almost impossible to resist. And the cost of that is just not worth it. Now, of course, if you're, if you're in a relationship, if you're married and you, and you have done that, God's grace abounds. But while you
2: have the opportunity... While you have the opportunity, if you are single, resist that temptation. Well, I think we get the picture about how bad Ahab is, don't we? It's pretty clear. But Scripture's not done. Let's read from verse 25. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord, like Ahab,
1: whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. There it is again.
2: He acted very abominably in going after idols, as the Amorites had done,
1: whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. We've already seen this in uh, 1 Kings 16.30, uh, so it shouldn't be a surprise to us that the Bible is telling us again that Ahab is the worst of all the kings. And yet the author drops it back in here again to emphasize the point. Yeah, it seems out of the blue, which is why our translations put brackets around it, but the point is really being underscored. Ahab, in case you've missed it, really is the worst of the worst. He is the worst. He repeats the language of him selling himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord again. And he reminds us that he and Jezebel, they're a real Bonnie and Clyde. They are partners in crime. But then verse 26 exposes us to the pointy end of Ahab's evil. You see, not only had Ahab broken the sixth and the eighth commandments, not only had he sold himself completely to do evil, and not only had he led the entire nation of Israel into sin... But he led them into the very sin that God promised in the second commandment in Exodus 20 would result in
2: generational punishment. Idolatry. You see that? The very God whom Ahab should have been worshipping him alone, the
1: one before whom he was supposed to have no other gods before, Ahab turned away from him and instead turned to false deities made by human
2: hands. Friends, make make no mistake. Idolatry is extremely
1: serious and lies at the heart of so much sin. And we, in the 21st century, have not escaped the, the potential trappings of that. Just because we may not have actual idols, you know, statues of false gods in our houses does not mean that we, that we do not have idols in our own hearts that we run to, that we seek for satisfaction, for
2: joy, for pleasure, for worship, that we serve, that we love. The Amorites were a people group in the land of
1: Canaan that Israel conquered when God gave them the land. They were known for their worship of false gods. And so these verses highlight, they say all of this. They, they specifically point out Ahab's
2: idolatry to highlight the fact that he had abandoned the true and living God, the very one that he was. Chosen and supposed to lead Israel to worship. At this point, from everything that we've just read, we're not supposed to be surprised at the justice that is coming for Ahab. He and his house and his spouse deserve it. which is why the next section comes as a total surprise
1: and one that reveals yet another aspect of God's nature.
2: That brings us to point two, love mercy. Depending on where you are in the world, uh,
1: you might have a more or less favorable attitude towards mercy. In some cultures, to show mercy Uh, is seen as a sign of weakness. Justice is a far more highly prized value. In our Western culture, we're actually all about mercy. Uh, We think everyone deserves mercy, that is, of course, until someone sins against what we think is right, and
2: in that case, no, you don't deserve mercy. What's your definition of mercy? As with justice, if you're a Christian, you ought to love mercy.
1: Why? Because God loves mercy. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 31 tells us the Lord our God is a merciful God. But also, Just with our understanding of justice, we ought to ensure that our definition of mercy is also shaped by God's Word and not by our own sense of what it should be or how our culture defines it.
2: And so the crucial question that we must answer is, do you love the kind of mercy that God loves?
1: do you love the kind of mercy that God loves? Because it's it's one thing to love a mercy that looks like the kind of mercy that is uh, shaped by our culture, formed by society around us, that everyone loves. And it's another to love the
2: kind that God displays. Let's read from verse 27. And when Ahab Would you show mercy to the worst of the worst? Would you show mercy to the worst of the worst? Tearing clothes and and putting sackcloth
1: on was a common sign of humility and contrition. Jacob did it when his sons came and told him that uh, his uh, son Joseph had been eaten by a lion. David did it when uh, his son Bathsheba was taken as a result of his sin. And clearly, God sees this act that Ahab uh, does in the sackcloth and tearing of his clothes as a
2: genuine act of humility. a genuine act. And God
1: shows him mercy. Throughout the history of God's people, time and time again, he shows that, that God is slow to anger. This is where those who might try to tell you that the God of the Old Testament is a mean and capricious and angry God who's always in a fit of rage and wants to kill something, that he's a so-called moral monster, this is where those who try and tell you that is the case have got it so horribly backwards. Sure, if, if God had no reason to bring judgment on people, then that would be a legitimate charge. But you see, this is the point. God has every reason to bring judgment on people. And we see that right throughout the Old Testament, that he has every reason to utterly burn people up. He has every reason to send a worldwide flood that would wipe out the entire population of the world except for one family. And yet because he is merciful, because he is gracious, because he is slow to anger, because he is Steadfast in his love, time and again,
2: he doesn't bring about the judgment that people deserve. This is woven throughout the whole narrative of the Old Testament. It begins with Adam.
1: It continues through Noah. It continues through Israel and Moses and on into the kings who continue to fail God's uh, um, commandments and instructions and laws that he has given them. Who have failed to seek the Lord with all their hearts as they were supposed to. And who continue to test God's patience and see how slow his anger really is. God's mercy in the Old Testament, far from being at odds with the New Testament, far from being something that is inconsistent with the God that we see in the New Testament, actually foreshadows the ultimate mercy that we would see in Jesus. Time and again, God never fails to show mercy to His people, even at the slightest hint of repentance.
2: That is how merciful he is. And so here, even with the worst of the worst of the kings of Israel who have ever reigned, the king who would hold his own against the worst rulers in history, there is still mercy for him. But do you notice something? God doesn't actually remove the punishment from him, does he?
1: His mercy is not shown through uh, not bringing about the judgment on Ahab, but actually simply delaying that judgment. God will mercifully allow Ahab to die before the judgment on his house and his sons is carried out. Well, why doesn't God remove the punishment completely? Well, if you go on to read chapter 22, you'll see that Ahab's repentance isn't actually the kind of wholehearted turning from sin and trusting the Lord that genuine repentance looks like. Ahab continues to trust in false prophets rather than actually wanting to hear from the word of the Lord. And we don't see any record of him destroying the idols and false religions. As I said, there's actually, it seems like, an indicator that he hasn't done that at all. His heart, it seems, experienced genuine sorrow over the judgment that God had pronounced over him, but not genuine repentance. As 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, For godly grief produces A repentance that leads to salvation without regret.
2: Whereas worldly grief produces death. It seems clear that what Ahab experienced was merely worldly grief. He was sad
1: about the fact that he was going to receive this judgment, but that did not result in him wholeheartedly
2: turning his heart towards the Lord. And yet, even in this response, God still shows him mercy. It just goes to show that genuine repentance is not just sorrow for our sin. It's not just sadness about the judgment that our sin deserves. Because you see, anyone can
1: do that. Anyone can have genuine sorrow over judgment. Genuine repentance is a complete turn around. It is a full about face.
2: It is a destroying of idols and a running to Jesus. Which brings me to my final point. Love, Jesus. I titled this sermon, Just Mercy, because as
1: we've seen, both justice and and mercy are aspects of God's nature that cannot be separated from one another. His justice is merciful, and his mercy is just. So he doesn't, he's not just mercy, he is just mercy. Theologians throughout history have described God as simple. Not meaning that God is basic and that he has no complexity. No, the term means that God doesn't have aspects of himself that are somehow separated from one another. So it's not like you get angry God in the Old Testament and then you get loving and merciful God in the New Testament. It's not like you might get get just God today and then you might get merciful God tomorrow. Uh, It it doesn't work that way. And nor is God. 30% merciful and 15% just and, you know, 50% loving, etc., etc., etc. No, the characteristics and attributes of God are all part of Him, all at once, all at the same time. And so when He is being just, His justice is merciful and vice versa. And He is also all of the other things at the same time. He's loving, He's compassionate, He's powerful, He is righteous, and so on. And we see this come together beautifully later on in Exodus, in a well-known passage in chapter 34, where God appears to Moses and he declares his own name, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin.
2: But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. This is the great puzzle of the Bible.
1: How on earth could God possibly forgive iniquity and transgression and sin, yet at the same time not clear the guilty? How could two seemingly contradictory things coexist? How can God be both just and merciful? You see, one of the reasons we find this so puzzling is because we've actually defined justice and mercy in ways that are not consistent with God and with His Word. That's because in our sin, we determine what we think we deserve and use that to define justice
2: and mercy. And so unless we realize, friends, what the Bible, what God's Word says about him and about us, we will always be confused. And one of those things that we so often forget is that you and I are naturally just as sold out to evil as Ahab was. The Apostle
1: Paul even uses the same language in Romans 7.14 to
2: describe the state of his flesh as he battles it. The reality is the word of the Lord has been proclaimed to us in the
1: gospel, which is the very center of the Christian faith. And that gospel, that message, that news reveals to us that God's
2: justice rightly condemns our sin. And what we deserve is being utterly burned up for eternity. That is God's justice.
1: Your and my failure before an eternal and a perfect God is deserving of an eternal and perfect punishment.
2: That is God's justice. Were God's mercy not to be a part of Him, that would be perfect justice, perfectly executed. This is why modern notions of justice just fail to recognize what true
1: justice is. Because so easily and quickly, we think that we are the innocent party in all of this. We think that we don't deserve that, that surely we don't deserve that. And so we we think that about other people. And we think that others are the ones who are guilty, not us. The problem doesn't lie here, it lies out there.
2: It lies with other people. But Jesus came preaching the gospel. And in that message, he came and
1: exposed our own guilt, our own sin, our own slavery to sin. He proclaimed the message that all who turn away from their sin and their idols and their slavery to sin and trust in him and run to him and believe in him, he came
2: proclaiming the message that all who do so will receive mercy. And so as Ephesians 2 reminds us, God is rich in mercy, and He makes us alive together with Christ. It is through Him that we are brought to life. In Christ, God's justice and His mercy coalesce. his perfect justice and his perfect mercy
1: are displayed in Christ on the cross and in his resurrection. It is in Christ that we see Exodus 34 come to full fruition. It is in Christ that we see just punishment for our sin paid and so God's justice being satisfied. You see, God doesn't just wave his hand and do away with that penalty as though the crime never happened. No, that penalty is paid in Christ. And it is in Him and because of Him that we then have access to His deepest and fullest mercies. And so just as the word of the Lord called Ahab to repentance, so the word of the Lord calls you to the same this morning. Even if you are the worst of
2: the worst sinners, take heart. God has saved many just like you. The Apostle Paul was, as he tells Timothy, I was the worst of the worst. In God's kindness, even the deepest seed can find the light of day. But friends, let Ahab also issue you with a caution. Grief over sin is not the same thing as repentance.
1: To be sad and sorrowful about justice isn't the same thing as genuine repentance. This is the problem, isn't it? Like Ahab, our natural response to the Lord's justice isn't shaped by the word, but it is shaped by our own sin. You see, it's all too easy to have an emotional response to this, saying that you feel really bad and sad about your own sin, but then refuse to genuinely repent. And it's all too easy to think that our emotional response validates our worldly definitions about justice and mercy. How much wrong and how much revenge has been done in the name of justice because people have felt like they were doing the right thing because they were grieved by injustice Because their emotional response validated that. You see, we confuse worldly passion and anger about what we think might be injustice or mercy with godly zeal.
2: Friends, our response must be guided by the Lord and by His Word. Now,
1: don't get me wrong. Grief over sin and engagement of emotions is an extremely good thing is an important thing. It indicates that our hearts are changing. It indicates that our hearts are starting to hate the sin, the idols that are in our lives, and to love the Lord who is good and and all-satisfying, as John Piper so often says. It is recognizing that our rebellion against Him is, is, is our fundamental sin. But true repentance and true worship doesn't stop at that emotional response. It continues to actively tear down and replace the idols of our hearts. It keeps searching and it keeps destroying those areas in our lives that aren't submitted to him, that are really just worldly loves masquerading as godly ones. Now please hear me, especially if you are a Christian who worries about idols that might be hiding in a closet of your life that you can't see and you're concerned that that is somehow going to condemn you. Let me encourage you this morning, remember that you are now His. It is by Christ's work on the cross that forgiveness of your sin is paid for, that the debt is paid for. And so as you continue in that good work of fighting sin, of destroying idols, of growing in love for Jesus, know that your salvation is founded not in whether you have an empty closet or not. Salvation is not dependent on whether your house is squeaky clean or not. Yes, we keep cleaning house, but that is not what earns you the mercy of God. It is His mercy in Christ that grants us eternal life in Him. As Paul would go on to say in the next verse of that letter, But I received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, as the worst of all sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. God's mercy and patience is shown to us in our humble submission to him in recognition that we cannot bring about salvation on our own. And it is in acknowledging our weakness and our dependency on him that his mercy shines the brightest. As one of my ha- favorite hymn verses expresses. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the, the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul,
2: I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. You see, as we run to Him and as we experience
1: His justice and mercy in our lives, we then start to see more clearly
2: what that means for our lives and what it means for others in the world. Some, like liberal theologian
1: Tony Jones, might suggest to you that a God who truly is just and merciful would not
2: judge people with eternal fire. That God should just click his fingers and save everybody. That is an example of a definition that is not given by the Lord's Word. You see, as we draw nearer to Christ, we slowly see how God's justice especially in the fire of judgment becomes more glorious to us i'm not saying that that is something that we just we absolutely do not treat lightly nor is it something that is easy It's not like we rejoice in seeing people we love head towards being utterly burned up. But as we see that God's holiness and His majesty are greater than ours, we begin to see His goodness even in the fire of judgment. And so our response. In seeing his justice and mercy at work in our lives, knowing that through faith in Christ we have received mercy. Well, that begins to completely reprioritize our lives, doesn't it?
1: The lens through which we view justice and mercy suddenly takes on an
2: eternal perspective. Love for others compels us to warn them of the coming judgment and to urge them to cling to Christ for mercy. Just think about this for a second. Do you feel like you're seeing more justice and mercy being done when
1: you're feeding the hungry or when you're saving the planet than when you're sharing the gospel? Do you think Christians who aren't more involved in that kind of work are doing less justice and mercy than they should be?
2: Yes, God still calls us to works of justice and mercy in the world like that. That's part of our
1: call to follow Christ. I'm not denying that, but if such works are void of sharing the gospel, and if they are not founded primarily on the gospel, then they are ultimately unloving. Because when Christ redeems us, He shows us that the greatest act of love and mercy that we can show to another person is to tell them about God's mercy in Christ and about how He has done that for us. The great preacher, Charles Spurgeon's mother, once
2: said to him, when she was convinced that he was lost, ah, my son, if at the last great day you are condemned,
1: remember your mother. Say amen to your condemnation.
2: That is a comment that only a mother who has seen the justice
1: and mercy of God in Christ in her own
2: life can make. That is a comment that only a mother who lives by the word of the
1: Lord And who sees in Revelation 19 that the saints will cry out hallelujah at the last judgment can make.
2: You see, it was out of great love for her son. That Eliza
1: Spurgeon could speak such penetrating
2: and pleading words with her son, Charles. And there were words that could only come
1: from a recognition that true justice and true mercy
2: is found only in Christ. So it is with us. Coming to Jesus through God's word and turning wholeheartedly to Him changes the way that we see the world, changes the way we see God's justice and His mercy. See, without Christ, Our definitions of justice and mercy will always be dissatisfying and empty. Our decisions about who deserves mercy and who deserves judgment will be guided by a moral compass that doesn't have Jesus as true north. they will be guided by a heart that hasn't experienced God's justice and mercy in Christ and they will therefore continue to define it in worldly ways friends look to Christ run to him In him, perfect justice and perfect mercy are embodied.
1: It is only in responding to him in the gospel through the word of the Lord that we may find justice and mercy for our own
2: sin and in so doing grasp God's definition of justice and mercy. Will you love justice and love mercy by loving Jesus? May the Lord, through his word, continue to work in us, to bring us to wholehearted repentance and faith in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we see how our own hearts are so easily skewed. We see how our own sin wants to seek justice and mercy the way we want to. We see in Ahab, the worst of the worst. Too easily and too often. A sorrow that lacks genuine repentance. Oh Lord. You who are rich in mercy. You who are slow to anger. Abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. We cling to you. We fly to you. We run to you. Seek your forgiveness. We pray, Lord, that as you work in our hearts by your Spirit that you would continue to lift our eyes to see Christ to see our Saviour to see the one who justly took on our sin at the cross and who defeated death in the grave so that through faith in Him, we might be forgiven. Father, these are deep and challenging things for us. We pray that you would keep transforming our hearts and our minds by your Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen.